Welcome to the Givology Impact Series podcast in which we share the experiences and inspirations of social entrepreneurs and changemakers around the world in education. My name is Anya Gupta and joining me is Tim Pear, co-founder of Tea Leaf Trust. How are you today? Doing really well, thanks Anya. Yeah, lovely to be here. Great. So to start off, can you give me a little intro into the organization, maybe your history, how and why it was created and your mission? Yeah, so we're Tea Leaf Trust and we work specifically in the tea estates of Sri Lanka up in the up in the hill country. Uh, it was started by my wife and I uh, and really the seeds of it were our honeymoon in 2007. So we went on your normal kind of two week honeymoon tour of Sri Lanka, I guess. And we spent one night at a hotel called the Tea Factory Hotel, which was, as it sounds, a converted tea factory and during the time we were there, we we were talking to and we um, were talking to the management about um, some of the issues that we'd seen on the drive up there, and uh, we weren't particularly impressed with the response or the way that they were talking. They were using guests' money to essentially paint the roofs of the accommodation from the tea estates called line rooms because of how small it is they were painting the roofs green with the guest money and that was their contribution and we realized really quickly that that was about camouflaging the poverty amongst the green tea bushes so that when the guests looked out of the hotel they didn't actually see the real life so the next morning we went for a walk and they gave us a guided map and it said turn right, so we turned left and we got lost in the tea estates. And after an hour of seeing the real life, we we promised that we were going to come back and set up some kind of educational program. And um, yeah, so 15 hours after arriving in the tea estates, we left having promised that we were going to set up a school. And uh, so we got back to the UK where we were, where we live, where we're from originally, and uh, we fundraised for a year outside of our full-time jobs. And a year later, we arrived back in Sri Lanka up in the tea estates on a one-way ticket, uh, lived there for four years, had our daughter there, and grew the project from that point. So really, we landed in Sri Lanka in 2009, but the seeds and the seeds of the idea came from 2007 on our honeymoon. Oh, that is a great story. Um, I know in your mi- mission, you mentioned tea estate communities. Can you elaborate a little more on what these estates are for people who don't know and why helping in these specific places is important? Yeah, so so around, well, almost exactly 200 years ago, the British, uh, through the British Empire, brought across, um, decided that they were going to plant tea in Sri Lanka, Ceylon, as it was then known. Um, because the coffee crop that they had been growing had suffered a blight. So they brought across um, a huge number of tea uh, of, of workers from South India, Tamil Nadu, a third of whom died on en route with the promise of a better life. Now, this community were living in famine at that point, and so easily signed up for it. And they moved to the tea estates where they were pocketed due to the geography and due to the need to pick tea over wide-ranging mountains, they were put into small communities. And each of these communities, well, each of the larger elements of the communities were called tea estates. 
And then a T estate is broken down into divisions, which are smaller, maybe two or three on a normal sized T estate. So the T estates are what produces, picks the tea through the tea workers, dry the tea, package the tea through the tea factories, and then they take it down to the auction house where it is sold to tea companies. So although somebody like your local big brand of tea, you know, like um, Unilever or um, uh, let me think of some others, Tetley in the UK, PG Tips, some of your household names in the States, although they may invest in tea estates, they don't really own them. They're owned within the country, certainly in Sri Lanka. They're owned by Sri Lankan companies, plantation companies, who then sell the tea through an auction house to the tea companies that you then buy it off. That makes sense. Okay. So what do you think are important parts of education to teach um, children living in poverty compared to like what children elsewhere in more first world countries learn? Yeah. Do you know that's a really interesting question? Because my my immediate reaction is that, of course, and this isn't about content, but they deserve exactly the same standard of education. That would be my baseline. You know, a kid who comes from a poor country or a poor community deserves exactly the same rights to education as a kid from a more privileged community. Now, in terms of we work with specifically 18 to 26 years old. So we work with young people who have come through 11 years of the government's system now within the t estates they are the there are um unqualified teachers who are essentially hidden within t estate schools and the systemic issue behind this is that if you want a guaranteed workforce to pick your tea then you keep them uneducated because if they're uneducated, they're dependent because they don't have that many career options. And therefore, you have your labor force to go through. And my personal belief is that the British Empire set that up brilliantly to ensure an indentured um, workforce who were uneducated and didn't have any options. And that's been carried on by the Sri Lankans since independence. So what they need is, if, if you just look at some of the basics, if you don't have English, because English is the international language in Sri Lanka, there are multiple languages. Um, the main two languages in Sri Lanka would be Sinhala, which is spoken by the majority of Sinhalese, and then Tamil, which is spoken by Tamils, uh, Sri Lankan Tamils, uh, upcountry Tamils who we work with, but also the Muslim community. So the way that they communicate with each other often is through English, and the way they do business with the international world is through English. So therefore, English becomes a key, a key skill, a key language, a key, a key um, subject that you need to learn and master to have a chance of career progression. So the government schools, um, a lot of the English teachers in tea estate schools don't even speak English. So then where's the progression opportunity? So so I guess within that area, within our specific area, and I can't talk for the needs of poor communities outside of our areas that we work, but every single one of our students lives off less than $1 a day. But the thing that is going to change their lives the quickest and the most simply is to give them English. And that's what their parents, when we had our initial kind of 20, 30 meetings with the communities when we were planning, 
the overwhelming desire of the parents was, if you want to help us teach our children English. And so that would be the component. I think that that is a component across Sri Lanka. I think, I think every kid in Sri Lanka is wanting to learn English, or at least their parents want them to. But I think that we have an immersive English program that is entirely taught in English, not just English medium, but actually even at break time, they have to speak English. And that is because it is the way of lifting these families out of extreme poverty. Got it. So I was going to ask if there is a language barrier, but you said the goal is to teach English, correct? Yeah. And, and, I mean, listen, mother tongue is really important. Culturally, being culturally um, respectful. And actually, there is incredible history. There's more history within the Tamil language and, and the Sinhala language than there is within the English language. And so it's not at the expense of that. You know, we're not, we're not, um, it's not colonization 2.0. What we're doing is responding to a market that ensures that those young people can progress. But we will also teach the Sinhalese uh, kids Tamil and the Tamil kids Sinhalese, because actually if they go into a workplace, they may need English for work, but to socialize and to build relationships and to have friendships and to have that ethnic social uh, cohesion piece that is so important in Sri Lanka after the 27 year civil war, they need to also be able to communicate in each other's languages. So it's a little bit more complicated than just English because there's multiple languages going on. Yeah, I never thought about the social aspect of it. And I previously you mentioned that you focus on like the 18 to 26 group. Is there a reason why you didn't um, focus on helping the government system instead? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think our our approach to that is that we do we do support and work with the government and the the, the local they're called zonal education um, directors you know we work through those local ministry of education teams i think one of the things that we believed was you know we have two key aims one is to give young people the skills they need to find meaningful employment off the t estates should they wish they may not wish to and the other one is to build emotionally resilient, um, ethical leaders of change who can change their communities from the grassroots. Now, if you want that change to happen, then you have to, you, you know, you either wait for young kids to come through and you're, you're able to influence them on a part-time basis over a number of years. And what we decided to do was we wanted to focus in on a year-long, full-time, free diploma course that would help us to a increase the employment chances of the young people but b to help the whole community by actually instilling in those young people a sense of leadership um power in their controlling their own destiny and being able to i guess ignite that social conscience in young people so that they go back to their communities so a quick example of how we would support government education for younger kids is every Wednesday um, in term one, we train our 18 to 26 year olds. Let's take an example of one of our schools in Maskelia. We'll train 165 18 to 26 year olds how to teach basic English to kids aged between seven and 11 years old. Mm -hmm. 
And in term two and term three, we close our school at Wednesday lunchtime. Those 165 students will go out to 31 government schools after they close and will teach 2,300 children two hours of free basic English classes. And therefore, we're growing the level of English knowledge, but we're also teaching our students, our 18 to 26-year-olds, that they have the power, they have the knowledge to actually start to share that knowledge like a cake, I guess, rather than keep it like a secret. And actually, we're giving them English for free. And what they're tasked with doing is giving that knowledge back to their community for free. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, to be able to teach them, you have to have like a team. So I guess, um, how are you working to make Tea Leaf Trust sustainable in terms of staffing and even funding for that matter? Well, the staffing one is is the um, is is sometimes the challenge, and I think that we do really well on that because what we do is we we have um, we have a rule that we only employ graduates of our program. So actually, out of fifty one staff members, I'm the only person outside of Sri Lanka who works on this, and within Sri Lanka we have fifty staff and 47 of them are graduates of the programme, and three of them are my, are my, were my students and colleagues when we first volunteered in 2009 at a different NGO while we were planning our project. So I think when we talk about that sustainability, we invest in our students and our young people, because if we're saying young people can lead the way, young people can lead their communities, then we have to show that by the fact that they lead our organisation. So all of our staff are aged under 34 and 47% of our, uh, 47 out of 50 come from, uh, have graduated our program and uh, 35 of those live on tea estates. So it's really that community. In terms of the funding, I think funding's always the challenge, eh? <laughs> like it's always the challenge. Yeah. But I think my view is that if you have the quality of impact and then you can tell that story and you let that story be told and that impact be led by the community themselves, which is what we do, then actually the momentum begins to build. And it's taken a while, but, but now the momentum is beginning to build. And I think people are beginning to understand within Sri Lanka and external to Sri Lanka that the way this community has been forgotten and the way this community has been treated despite producing one of the third the third largest export um, contribution to the country, it's not okay. It's unacceptable. And I think people are beginning to understand that. And as they understand it, they're beginning to look for who's on the ground working with these tier state communities. And we're 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 one of the few organizations who are specifically focused on the tier states and the only one that's run by people from the tier states. That's great. So I guess adding on to that, especially when you started, how did you measure impact? And um, specifically, what were some qualitative and quantitative metrics that you tracked or track even track now? So, I mean, we, we track, our, our problem actually is working out um, 
what's too much to track, right? So at the start of the year, for example, we will, when we do our selection, we'll know exactly which tier states these young people are coming from. And, and we offer places to anybody. So it could be a Sinhalese or a Muslim young person coming from the local town area. And we judge it on poverty. So our metric at that point is not the qualification. Um, it's not a caste that they're in because the caste system still operates and, and we push back against that. But it's purely on what's their need and also what's where are they based and how accessible are other courses. So we'll track all of that. When they arrive, we'll do an economic survey of every young person who comes to our school. So we'll know what their family household income is. We'll know how many family members. We'll know, we'll, we'll know all of that stuff. So that's how I, I know that every single student in 2023, 380 students, they all live off less than a dollar a day. So, so that's how you would know that. Then we do a metric of um, emotional health, for example, like how's their emotional health when they come in and around 40% are considering or carrying out self-harm and around 25% are ideating suicide. Like it's a hotspot for young people and suicide within South Asia. You know, Sri Lanka's got the highest level in, in South Asia. Then as they go through the year, we'll of course track their grade books in all of the subjects and that normal stuff. But we'll track what they do to serve the community, which beneficiaries. And then when we get to the end of the year, we have an employment service. So we'll track how many people we send to interviews, how many people get jobs. And then year by year, we do a sample that we're showing how is the household income increasing. And so we set ourselves some KPIs like we expect we expect our young people who go into full-time employment, we expect them to double their household income within 12 months. We expect them to earn 50% more than their counterpart from their tea estate who didn't attend tea leaf. So, so we have, a, and we, we would expect that we boost their emotional health and their, um, and their emotional resilience. And we, it's, that one's a really difficult one to track. But we would track that on a very broad level against the fact that we would have expected normally to have seen about 30 more suicides over the last 10 years. We've had three, which is tragic, but we'd have expected to have between 30 and 40. So, so we track all of that stuff and everything in between, really. We know, how, we know the percentage of young women who come to our school. We know the ethnic breakdown. We know who comes from which level in which tier states. I could tell you that we have 2,200 alumni from 174 different tier states, you know? So, so, so those, those data points are really important for us. I guess the key one that we're looking at is economically, how much does their household live off when they come to us? And despite giving up their income for one year, how much do they earn within 12 months of leaving us? And is that sacrifice of their salary for the 12 months they study with us worth it in the long run? Yeah. So with that sacrifice, is there, how do they keep the income? Like when they're, so they're not working when they're part of the course. So how do they keep like that income going for their family? Most of them come to us from after finishing their A-levels or after, um, after having been in exploitative employment that they've left. So most of them, when they come to us, are not are, are, are unemployed at that point. Undoubtedly, it's a sacrifice for the families. Um, and 
that's something that the families generally like. We say it's a free course, but of course it's not it's not free for them because they do have to sacrifice a salary that they could be earning. So there's part of that which is their sacrifice. And then there's part of that which is because we do an economic survey and because we know exactly where they're traveling from and how much the bus costs them every day, for example, then we do offer, I mean, this year we're probably offering 50% of our students support with their bus fare. And, and last year at the height of the economic crisis that saw a kilo of rice going from 80 rupees a kilo to 230 a kilo, that saw fuel go from 180 rupees a litre to 500 rupees a litre, that saw an egg go from 12 rupees to 60 rupees, but saw nothing added to the salary of a tea estate worker. Last year, we had to really go into emergency mode and we found sponsors, really generous people from our community who committed to $20 a month for one student to get them through. And that went directly into their family. That wasn't for us. That money got paid on. So there is a sacrifice and we do try to ensure that we poverty is not a barrier, um, but it's tough. It's tough yeah. for them and you know, tough for us to meet the need. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, would you like to share some impacts that you've seen like your courses have on communities? If there's any specific stories you'd like to share? Um. Yeah, I think, I mean, 47 of our staff are from, you know, are from the graduated the program, right? So during COVID, they became the sole breadwinners within their families. So we have one of our uh, managers who lives in a three-bed, and when I say a three-bed house, not like a three-bed house that we would know, you know, it, it, yeah. it's a three rooms in the house, including the kitchen, the living quarters and the sleeping quarters for 11 family members and so he he was really really um stretched during that time and yet he was still leading his community and he was the sole breadwinner looking after 11 people in his family and and those are stories that we have you know any one of our teachers could tell you they were all the sole breadwinners looking at an alumni i, I when i was out there in march i had a meeting and it was almost as if I had set it up, actually, but it was purely purely um, um, serendipitous, I guess, serendipity. We were meeting in a, in a kind of quite a nice hotel for a coffee with my chair of, of my board. And the young man who came across, um, I'd met him in that hotel four years earlier before the pandemic when he was wiping tables. And he came across and he was now a supervisor and he asked whether he could buy our chair, who he knew, and me a drink. Uh, and as we were talking to him, he came to our programme because his elder sister had come to our programme. And his elder sister, the family had four kids and when they came to the programme, we had to support her bus fare because they were really, really struggling. They were going through really, really tough times. You fast forward 10 years, and they now have all four of their kids have been through Tea Leaf Trust program. She's a qualified, um, she's, she's got a degree in business administration. He's working as a supervisor at the Cinnamon Grand Hotel in Colombo. 
his younger brother is studying at the University of Singapore, and his youngest, the youngest in the family, has, has, has just got a junior job in a startup in a um, company. And their monthly salary has gone from less than 20,000 rupees, which is 50, 50 pounds, $70 a month, to over 200,000. So, so what, 10 times increase in their family income. So, so that's a story that's really stuck with me is, is, is now I think that what we see is that the families have tea leaf trust built into their educational journey of the kids. So my, my kid will do their O-levels, they might do their A-levels, then they'll do tea leaf, and then they'll go to university or they'll get a job. And it's accepted. But the problem is we have 380 applications for 160 places in Maskelia, and we have 100 for 50 places in every other one of our centres. So the problem is how well it's been taken on and impacted the community. Yeah, Which that totally makes sense. Yeah. Mm. And I guess to that point is like, do you involve the community in the projects you have, like in design or to ensure they're relevant? Or is like the community involved in that? Yeah. So, I mean, because we have 47 out of 50 of our staff who are from the community, then then the staff are definitely involved. And then also we have 380 young people who, um, and we run a children's rights through women's empowerment program. So we work with 400 women and 829 children as well. And so part of what we do is we just touch base with that community and we, we just check in what are the needs that you have? Are we satisfying the need? And so things like, for example, 10 years ago, when we started teaching our young people IT, in order to be ahead, to be 15% better than people from other ethnicities around the country and other areas because of that inherent kind of racism that exists and stereotypes that exist about the tea pickers being uneducated, they have to be 15% better. Now, 10 years ago, MS Office and touch typing in English was enough to make sure that they were 15% better. But yeah. now, now, thankfully, the country's IT level, the capacity has increased. So now it's not enough. So now what we're looking at and what we're hearing from our community is they would like some additional IT opportunities. So we're looking at a coding school. We're looking at using pathways to become web developers, data analysts, so I think that's an example of how the community does shape and drive our relevance. And we check in with them to make sure that we're still, we're still giving them what they need to sacrifice that year for their young people from their salary so that their young people can then lift their families out of extreme poverty. Yeah, that's really, really great. And I saw um, that Tea Leaf Trust was started more than a decade ago. So congratulations. Um, can you tell me how the organization has changed over time? I don't know. I bet you definitely have some key learnings or challenges over the years that you've come to. Yeah, I mean... I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. It was 15 years ago that Yaz and I went on our honeymoon and we, we didn't have a clue um, 
really what we were doing. You know, I taught English abroad and I ran a careers uh, centre, a charity in London. Um, but really, we didn't know anything about the culture. And I think a lot of the things, you know, some of it is planning and some of it is making good decisions. And a lot of it is luck, you know, as with anything. I think what we did really well retrospectively was that we were really good. We knew because we were only given three years maximum on our visas initially. We knew that the project, if it was going to be sustainable, was going to need to feel and be owned by the community. So right from the start, we had that in our mentality. This wasn't a white savior project. Like actually, I'm doing this podcast now, but actually I give some coaching and strategy and I generally do fundraising for Tea Leaf Trust. The team in Sri Lanka is determining how we best meet the needs of the community. One, one example I'd give of some of our learning um, is that when we were gonna open our school, we had been volunteering at another, another NGO, a similar school that's actually given us quite a lot of our blueprint for what we do, a school called Beacon Hill Academy, which, which we volunteered at for a year. And we made the decision that we weren't going to employ qualified teachers because we felt that they had not been trained particularly well by the government. We didn't like what we were seeing when we were going around government schools at that time. There were great teachers in government schools, but I think there's not a lot of resources put into their training. So what we decided to do was that we were going to employ young people right from the start. And I think that that was a really key moment. But it was not without challenge because I remember this young woman coming in. So we employed 16 of our students that we were teaching. And actually we... We had the opportunity because their parents said, we're not going to let them come down to this place to start the school with you unless you live with them. So we ended up for the first two years of, the, of our project, we ended up living in one level of a wedding hall. Mm -hmm. 16, 18 to 22 year olds, um, sharing a kitchen with them, just listening to all of their problems that they had about being away from home for the first time. None of them had taught before. They were teaching people their own age. So it was it was a really, really steep learning curve. And culturally, it was great because there were weddings going on every week. There were, you know, there were specific cultural things that were happening. But then there was the normal stuff of people getting drunk and fighting and singing and all, all of that joy, but tension was there. And I remember one woman, one young woman coming to us for the job interview for that opportunity. And I said, what would you like to teach? And she said, I want to teach success and ethics, which is the curriculum around personal development. And we've been teaching it at this kind of, it wasn't a higher level school, but the kids had better English when they came in. And I said to her, I don't know that the tea estate community is going to have the level of English to be able to do this course because it's quite complicated. And she stood up and said, well, then I withdraw my application because I don't know what you're doing. If you're not doing that course, you're not going to change their lives. You're just going to give them English, but you're not going to change their lives because they're still going to have their problems and they're not going to know how to navigate their problems. And she walked out. And I sat there that evening and I thought, wow, this is a great example of the white bloke coming in and thinking that he knows best. And so the next morning I called her up and I said, come back and see me, will you, for a cup of tea? And I said, okay, we'll do it, but you're gonna lead it. 
and together we'll work out how do we how do we make the English bits simpler without losing the actual messaging. And I think I think that was a real key bit of learning is that Tim, you don't know what you don't know. And don't be thinking that you do just because you've come up through a different education system in a different part of the world. These young people know what they want to do. They know what their communities need. Your job is to provide the resources and the opportunities and then really to get the hell out of the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was also wondering, like, I bet you've been making so much progress and then the pandemic kind of put that to a halt. How did the pandemic affect the programs? Yeah, I mean, you know, Sri Lanka's had a really tough time because before the pandemic, it had the Easter Sunday bombings. Mm -hmm. And that paralysed our area of the country because the, the last training camp for the terrorists was actually in, in one of our areas and communities. So actually, for, the, for a long time, they've had the Easter Sunday bombings, then they've had the pandemic, and then last year they had this political crisis, they had the economic crisis, the country was at a standstill, there's no money in the country. Um, so we've had to really, really change and really, really um, learn on the spot. But also we've had to add humanitarian assistance, right? Because we have, even now, we have families whose kids are living off one meal a day and two cups of hot water. You know, there's a there's there's a, there's a huge huge humanitarian crisis that is still going on within the tea estates, even as the rest of the country struggles, but is returning to some level of normality. So I think the way that we had to do it, like everyone else, we had to you know pivot, and and everyone thinks you know the solutions go online, and but only forty five percent of our students had either signal or device or data you know, and had all of those three things. So we also had to be responsive. So what we did was we developed a system where we would print out hard copies because Sri Lanka went into four day lockdowns and then six hours where everybody piled out to buy shopping and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So in those six hours, we would have people going to key tea estates and leaving a package for somebody on the tea estates, which was full of lesson plans for all of the kids in that tea estate area. And then that person would distribute to all of those houses. And then a week later or whenever the deadline was, they would collect it back, leave it in the spot, leave a WhatsApp message, and we would go and collect it at the next lockdown. I mean, it was crazy complicated. Yeah. And again, only led by our team. They're the only people who would have even known how to navigate that. Yeah, totally. That 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 is a huge um, hurdle. Um, so does Tea Leaf Trust have any future goals that you're excited about? Have you ever thought of expanding to other communities in Sri Lanka? Um, you know, I, I'm aware and we do get approached by people. You know, even at the moment, we're talking to somebody about what a centre up in Jaffna on the north would look like or down in the south or in the east. Our focus is the tea estates. They are the community that has been ignored and forgotten about and also deliberately kept down. So at the moment, we have five centres. We, we won't look outside of the tea estates until we have at least 10 centres. You know, that's, that's, that's when we think, as, we feel as if we have enough of a footprint there to be able to say, okay, 
And well, let's have a think about some of the other opportunities. We've also, we're also talking to one of our funders about the possibility of tier state communities in places like India and Assam and Darjeeling, which have really, really similar experiences and tough experiences and, and you know, slightly different in their own ways. So, so we do have those future ambitions, you know, but um, first and foremost, we want to go deep into our communities and make sure that they are experiencing change. The last couple of questions I had were, are there any big successes that the organization has accomplished or that you'd like to highlight? Well, I think we've got a really, you know, we've got a really interesting model where essentially, you know, again, if we just take an example of one center, but we've got five centers, we've got like 165 young people who come through the program full time. But during that year, because we're giving them opportunities to learn how to lead their communities and solve community problems and give back to their communities, during that year, those 165 will teach 2,300 children basic English. They will run holiday activity programs for another 2,000, 2,500 children. And then through structured service projects, they will support over 50,000 of their community members. So if you look at, you know, we've done, what, 13, 14 years now, you've got 2,300 odd alumni, but you've got 25,000 kids who have learned English. You've got 25,000 or so kids who have learned through health and nutrition through holiday activities. You've got um, nearly half a million um, community members who have had their water tanks fixed or had their bus shelters repaired in time for the monsoon or had the broken glass at their local school changed. So I think the accomplishment is really that that has been done by young people from the tier states. They have led that. They have, they have managed it and led that organization in Sri Lanka. Um, because we lived there from 2009 to 2013 and 2017 to 2019. But we're, we are sitting behind. The leadership is coming from those young people in their community. And that's the accomplishment because I don't know of another organisation. I'm sure that they exist around the world, but not that I've seen in Sri Lanka, that has that depth of impact and that commitment to their community and actually has continuously improved and um, achieved such incredible results for the for the communities that they live within yeah and i think it's really great that the organization is driven on the community itself um so the last question i had was how can the listeners get involved with tea leaf trust what can they do to help oh send me an email let's have a chat so so obviously you can donate obviously we've we've always got a need at the moment you know for example we haven't got enough chairs you know we have this amazing moment where one of our new schools was full up we had two women come in um, with their with their daughters and they said we need you to educate our daughters and the principal said look she showed them around the classroom she said we've got no chairs we've got no space and they said okay and they went off and then the next morning they turned up with two chairs with their daughters and left them and said, here are your chairs, educate our daughters and walked off. And my principal was like, well, what, what can I do? Like we have to, so 
So there's a funding need there, which is about constantly we need computers and we need desk, we need desk armchairs for the students. So obviously funding us is a way. If you want to be a big funder for $15,000, you can have your own center. $15,000 a year, you can have your own center named after you, right? So there's the big one. In terms of the other things people can do, it's just re buy good tea. That's the first one. Don't buy shit tea. Buy good tea from companies that at the very least have fair trade, but actually direct trade is better because fair trade is not always successful through the corporate model. So volunteer, like get in touch with us, come out. Because Sri Lanka is going through a really bad economic time at the moment, but that makes it great value to go there as a tourist. And you're putting money into the community. So visit Sri Lanka and while you're there, come and see us, come and have a cup of tea with us. Come and actually meet these students and it will be life-changing for them but it will be life-changing for you as a volunteer so so i guess those are the ones and then and then if you've got any other ideas then tim at tealeaftrust.com just get in touch with me let's chat that's great so thank you so much for your time today i love the stories all the insights you shared listeners chat with tim donate whatever you can do so please check out Tea Leaf Trust and thank you, Tim.